Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 76 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Drive Angry 3D from 2011. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And joining us once again today is Chris Mattiello. Hello, Chris. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. This movie is kind of amazing and also kind of, I don't want to say terrible. Terrible is the wrong word. Uh, I know that Mike had seen this movie before. I had seen this movie before. Chris, you seen this before, or was this the first time? I had not seen this before. I kind of feel like I still haven't seen it after I watched it, because I don't, <laughs> I don't remember anything, and I watched it so, yesterday. I have a thesis for this movie, and I don't think it's necessarily hmm. like a very highbrow or very intelligent thesis, but about halfway through the movie, Cage is supposedly killed, and then he's not killed, he comes back to life, and someone says, he ain't dead, how come? It doesn't matter. Like, why isn't he dead? It doesn't matter. Like, this whole movie is just sort of like, why is this happening? Oh, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. We're just going to ha- we're, we're here along for the ride, the literal, you know, ride of this them driving angry across the country. Like, this movie is not worth picking apart in terms of what's happening because things, it doesn't matter why things are happening. Like, a demon comes back from hell, Satan's accountant comes to track him down. <laughs> Like, why? It, does, it doesn't matter. Like, it's just this whole movie. So this movie's not trying to be great. It's trying to be fun, and I think it really succeeds, for the most part, in being a lot of fun in a lot of places. For me, I really like this movie. It feels like a drive-in film, you know, like what those movies were sort of meant to be, just like this cheap, schlock, hard R, sex and violence, write whatever you can think is the craziest thing you could imagine and actually shoot that. That's what's coming to mind to me as almost like, hey, they designed the poster before they even made this movie and we're riffing off that kind of vibe. (laughs) Almost like Grindhouse in a way, that more modern tone. There's shots at the end, especially in this final battle with with the cultists or the final sort of action scene with the cultists where Cage is jumping around in his car and like it looks like in terms of the action and also how the action is made on the computer it looks kind of like Machete you know like when Machete jumps his motorcycle Mm -hmm. so I was definitely getting Grindhouse vibes not trying to make it look bad but also not spending way extra money to make it look great like they know what they're making it's going to look cool if you question it you might be taken out of the movie but like it looks good enough to keep you in it yeah, calling it exploitation is probably the best classifier for it. It's definitely a dirty movie. It's grimy. It's got a lot of boobs and butts, a lot of violence. It's got a lot of cult exploitation kind of satanic panic thing going for it. You know, it's an acquired taste for sure, right? It's it's striving to be offensive. I think, like you say, like the exploitation angle, um, they're really pushing it in this too. And so... I was actually pretty surprised with how much they were able to get away with in this movie. Joey, we've talked before about films that are just like, okay, they're going to just go for a hard R and let you know it. And this one really, right from the opening, just lets you know (laughs) it's a fucking hard fucking R-rated movie. And that's a very important word that you're saying a couple times there because we get the opening narration from William Fickner, who I really like in a lot of movies, but I don't think I've ever liked him more than I like him in this movie. And I don't know that I've ever seen him having more fun than he had in this movie. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily true. He might have hated making this movie, but just the way that he carries his character, I find it hard to believe that he had nothing but the best time in the world making this movie. That he seemed like he was totally on board and was just like, I'm going to play Satan's accountant, I'm going to track down Nicolas Cage, and I'm just going to be like a guy who can apparently smell where other people go. Bring it on. Like, whatever crazy things you want me to say, whatever crazy things you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Since the birth of time, humanity has endeavored to restrain evil men in prisons. But since Cain fled the murder of his brother, evil men have fled the walls of punishment. 
So it doesn't matter if you're a badass motherfucker on the run because you think you're better than everyone else and somehow entitled to do what you gotta do. No. Because you see, badass motherfuckers are never fast enough. In the end, they will all be accounted for. I, you know, this guy always seems like really creepy when he's on screen, even when he's playing nice guys and stuff. So this was like, I felt like a perfect role for him because he's so ambiguous, but I don't know, like very forward. And I don't know what I'm trying to say about this guy, actually, to be honest with you. It's just like, it's a joy to watch him in this role. You know, like I've always been sort of on the fence about him as an actor, you know, and, and like Armageddon and other, can't really even tell you roles, but I, I will always know him from this movie. He has definitely made his mark on me with his performance. Yeah, I've seen him before in a handful of things that I could think of. Not too many. He's always fun. He's he's great at chewing scenery. He does it really well in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboot. He's probably the best part of that movie as well. He was on some TV show that came on around the time that Lost was like... whenever he, Prison Break. It wasn't Prison Break because he played a possessed guy. He was, he was like possessed by an alien. So he was on Prison Break. He's also on Invasion, Invasion which I didn't watch. It. Yeah, I'm thinking of Invasion. He was he was good in that as a bad, creepy guy. He's the bank manager at the beginning of The Dark Knight, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. oh that guy, he's so good. Why is he laying this for three minutes? I love that guy. But he is, he's a great that guy, and he's a great scenery chewer, and he's actually my favorite part of this movie by a good amount. Well, I think that he, I think that's definitely fair to say, because Cage, like, Cage is kind of a man on a mission, and Cage has some cool lines and some whatever... But I guess his character is too singularly focused on getting his, basically his granddaughter back, right? Like getting the baby of his dead daughter back from these cultists, which is a crazy plot, a crazy (laughs) synopsis to talk about. But he's so focused on doing that that he almost has no time for fun, that even when he, midway through the movie, is compromising that girl in that saloon, roadside, truck stop, hotel, motel, whatever, even when he's having fun, he still has his mind focused on business. So I don't think Cage is allowing his character to have fun. But William Fickner is just like, at the very end, he's like, I've never had more fun than tracking you down. You know, if you're going to break free again, like, sign me up. Like, I'm going to go after it. He's having fun, and it's fun to watch him because he's, like, the character himself is having fun. Yeah, I mean, I think when someone comes to you and and gives you a script and is like, hey, Nick Cage is going to shoot a bunch of people and crash a bunch of cars, and you're going to play the ferryman of the River Styx come to Earth to hunt him down. Like, I feel like he's just like, yeah, all right. I'm in. Let's let's get weird. And that's the right yeah. call. Yeah, totally. I think, like, if you're reading this script, I, I don't know, like, you, you'd be up for anything, right? Like, <laughs> if you made it to the end of this script and showed up and, like, took a meeting with these guys, then, like, you are here to play ball, right? That's sort of the way I feel about it. And, and he is definitely allowed, or everybody is really allowed to stretch as much as they want. It's interesting what you say about Cage. Like, he is sort of the most contained performance here, which is kind of a little disappointing for me because I expected him to almost get crazier, but he's sort of playing Snake Plissken in a lot of ways, um, yeah. you know, and he's very much just that one note. Like, I do love how crazy what happened to his daughter, like, when we get into it, like, I just love how extremely nuts that all go because it just seems like every time they mention it, like, you learn a new bit of information and, and it all escalates even more and more. That's actually a thing I didn't like about this movie is the first 20, 25 minutes or so of the movie really went out of its way to just show you how fucking in your face this movie is. <laughs> and it, it, I actually, I, I just hated it. There were, there were lines here and there that I was just like, oh, 
shut up, movie. I don't need this. <laughs> Just get back to car chases and stuff. Don't try to be so uh, so in your face and so raw. And uh, I don't know. There was there were things, and we'll get to them that really turned me off about it. Most of them revolving around how horrible, horrible the antagonist is in this movie. He's just horribly written, oh, horribly acted. Yeah, uh, just the worst. I think I liked him because he was so bad. That I don't know if his character is intentionally, like, really, really broadly drawn or broadly written. Like, he's so cliche. Like, he's basically a cliche cult leader, hamming it up to ham it up. And I think it works really well. I don't think that it's necessarily original, but I think that in this world that they're building, that's exactly the kind of villain that you expect and kind of the villain that you want. At least I want. I didn't think they went far enough with it. Throughout the movie, you're getting these little hints that he was like a, he was basically like a charlatan. He's putting on an act. Like, he was almost a, uh, one of those televangelists that was just doing the whole thing for money. Like, I expected almost at the end for you to find out that maybe he was, like, a Northeasterner with, like, a, a Boston accent that came from a rich background. <laughs> and was just doing the whole thing for, like, the power and the chicks or something. But no, like, through the end, he's just this Oklahoman, Southern drawl gunslinger guy who unironically fans his gun when he shoots ah i just was so i i hated him (laughs) so much and not for the ways that like they went out of their way plot wise to make you want to hate him i just fucking hated every (laughs) moment he was on screen but like on the other hand that's probably what you're gonna get from an actor whose biggest credit is the flannel cop dad from twilight so yeah well yeah oh man poor guy I didn't mind him so much. I mean, yeah, he is a weak link, but I also feel like this isn't a movie to be heard. It's more of just a movie to be seen in a lot of ways. Like, it almost feels like you should just blast the soundtrack of, like, Metallica while you watch this thing. And it's like what they're talking about to me doesn't really even matter. It's all just in their appearance and in the way they carry themselves. And, And yeah, this guy isn't doing anything original. And I think that's the problem. Like, I get Manson crossed with Jim Jones, right? But he never takes it to like his own place I feel like he's just sort of aping stuff that is iconic and it just kind of comes across a little lazy and he could be going a lot further with this role but I think on the one hand that's supposed to be part of it is that like he's just like a phony and everything I was hoping at the end you know <laughs> almost like in season of the witch Joey that we'd find out he was like possessed by a devil a demon who had a grudge against Satan or something and wanted to be the new warden of, uh, of hell jail I'm trying to decide if I think that they should have gone bigger with him because really the main character is essentially quote unquote a bad guy the guy who's chasing him is a bad guy well there's already so many like colorful bad guys that you really need another one i know that he's sort of like the big bad of the movie but you're never going to be able to sort of out big bad william fickner you know what i mean like side by side he would have to go like so over the top it's almost like a, a losing effort. Like, you're just going to come in second to William Fickner. I, I don't know. They went in the middle. He rode the fence. They either had to go with him being a full-on, also a devil reject who escaped, or they had to go with him really being a full-on phony who never fought, who just kept throwing people in between him and Cage. I really expected that was where it was going. Like, a guy who could only do damage when he was taking a cheap shot and putting the gun, like, point-blank at Nicholas's Cage's head. But when, like, they had him be vaguely threatening in the last... I guess in the boss fight because this movie is a video game it it just it fell flat and it didn't work for me at all 
he was the the weakest link of the movie by far. Other than the the sheriff character, who we'll get to, who just kind of appears like for a cameo and then disappears. But yeah, Billy Burke <laughs> fell completely flat as a uh, Jonah, I believe his name was. Yeah. I don't Jonah uh, King. Jonah King. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, did nothing for me. I'm sort of conjuring a theory as we're discussing him. You know, like I think he is supposed to be in the entire movie the least masculine man. <laughs> Legend goes, uh, when he was murdering Cage's daughter, she bit his dick off before she yeah. died, right? And he sort of walks around in this silk shirt and kind of acts what you would maybe call effeminate in certain ways and stuff. You know, on the opposite end, you have Amber Heard, who is like the toughest person in this movie, right? <laughs> like, at times, like, I'm more scared of her than I am of Cage, who has escaped from hell. I almost feel like she's the main character here. I want to say that I think we found a winner for best oh, female character yeah. in any Cage movie ever. There's so many times, I kept writing it down, I don't have a tally, but it's gotta be six or seven. How many times he's about to get killed? Which we also need to talk about like whether he can actually be killed, because it seems like he's afraid of death, kind of, even though he can't be killed. But anyway, there's like six or seven times where he's about to be killed, or he's sort of like gun up to his face, or about to die, and she saves his life. She is always saving his life that there's no damsel in distress here from the very beginning she's talking about how she's i mean it's sort of it's sort of i guess maybe this is bad feminist writing i don't know but like to get her boyfriend to propose to her just said i'm not gonna let you touch my body we're not gonna have sex until you propose to me and then after two days he proposed or whatever but like from there i mean she's just sort of the kind of girl who takes no shit who as soon as she finds out that her boyfriend is, or now fiancé is cheating on her, she beats the shit out of him, and then they sort of go on the road, and she's just always in control of wherever they are and whatever they're doing. Yeah, she's great. I loved her in this movie. Easily my favorite part uh, that isn't named, you know, Bill Fickner. Had a blast watching her. This is going to show you how old and out of touch I am. Spent about 25 minutes thinking that was Blake Lively. And then not they, knowing there was a difference. Alike. yeah. I then uh, IMDb'd them both and was like, oh, one's Ryan Reynolds' wife, one is Johnny Depp's wife. Blake Lively, um, I, I realized that I had seen movies that she was in. Uh, Amber Heard actually acts. Like, um, she is an actress who does the acting. Because, um, <laughs> you know, I'd seen her in other stuff. All the boys love Mandy Lane. Yep. She was the one of the few good parts of The Rum Diary. Um, I actually enjoy, I, I realized I actually enjoy Amber Heard quite a bit. And she was, uh, she played a character in this and she really played it. And she sunk her, she also was chewing scenery. And this is a movie that needs that. And I agree with you, Cage's restraint was interesting, uh, surprising, but maybe correct in a movie with so many characters. And yeah, she was great. I just, yeah, I loved her. I was genuinely surprised how much she brought to the table in this movie. I had never really seen her in anything I can recall. And like, again, it was just like a movie where people are just making everlasting impressions on me. You know, like she's not just gorgeous, but like, I believe her abilities in this, like when she takes punches and when she gives punches and like when she's swearing her mouth off and when she's, you know, telling her boss off and all these kind, just all the things like I just buy everything that she's doing in this world. She is a good, I believe she is a good actress because, you know, she's doing what's appropriate in this type of movie yeah she knows she's not gonna get like an oscar for this no one does everyone knows that it's just not that kind of movie and she just really rocks her role in this it's what joey said about the gender politics of the movie uh they're not fantastic obviously um this movie i didn't really have that in mind i don't think but she's enjoyable and it does set up the beginning for her to be just a damsel in distress with a lot of the stuff you were saying you know she's a she's a diner waitress like you think she's just gonna kind of be well all right before I move away from the diner waitress part, this movie really loves Terminator. A lot of references to Terminator. 
that being one of the first ones is that she's basically doing the Sarah Connor thing. She's a put-upon waitress who's being sexually harassed, uh, and as many people are at the beginning of this movie, though the movie does, pardon the pun, shift gears, and she really does become that kick-ass action hero who you're right. She does bail Nick Cage out more than he bails her out, and that's awesome. I was also getting a little bit of a flashback to Next, Mike, where they're in a diner and Cage is basically in a diner. I don't know if he's necessarily looking for a girl. Why is he in that diner, I guess is the question. Like he, I don't know if he was just like walking by and saw that badass car. He sits in this diner and then the other waitress comes up. The gender politics, like Chris was saying, aren't great. But what I like about the Amber Heard character and her relationship with Cage is that every other waitress that Cage comes encounter with, and pretty much every other woman, basically, wants to sleep with him. Like, immediately right off the bat, it's just, like, hitting on him, like, laying it on thick. Like, when are we getting out of here? And she never does that with him. And I don't. I like that, that there's never a hint that there's never going to be a relationship between the two of them. They're just sort of in it together. Like, there's never a moment where, like, he, he gets the girl at the end. Like, they're not in it for that. They're just kicking ass together, and I love that. Yeah, I like to imagine he drove by and saw her license plate, which says, Drive Angry. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, okay, this is where I gotta be. And here's something I kind of appreciated about the writing. At the end, and just, you know, I mean, I'm not giving this a SAG award for writing, or I'm not getting, you know, I'm not giving this movie any awards for writing, but I did appreciate one thing about this. At the end, Cage says... I chose you, insinuating that she's some kind of chosen one. And I just loved how they didn't mention it at one point throughout the entire movie. Like, you don't know why he wants or is following this girl at all or trusts her for any reason. And then at the end, to come to find out that, like, she's the one, I just thought that was a funny touch. I wondered if they did that as a joke, just to refer to her as, like, the one that must raise the demon's granddaughter. She is the protector. She definitely would be a great mother. Throughout the movie, she He's, like, always demanding of answers from Cage, and he sort of, like, puts her off until he finally has to give in and, like, has to explain something. But everything he explains is, like, just barely enough to keep her quiet. Like, we don't really know, for most of the movie, like, what he's doing or basically who he is or what he is or where he's going or why he has a mission. We're kind of in line with the Amber Heard character, I think, right? That we don't know what he's doing We're just kind of there along for the ride. As she learns things, we learn things. And so I think that's kind of cool. Like She's sort of the the embodiment of the audience. She was definitely the embodiment of me because I also love driving and listening to Fuck the Pain Away by Peaches. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, Peaches, Mike. I mean, when I I heard the Peaches song, Chris, I don't know if you know, but in Cage Club, there is a long and storied history of the peach. I I am not aware. In Face Off, there's the classic line, I could eat a peach for hours. In Zondali, there's peaches, and I think there's one. There's peaches in some other movie, and the peach always represents the vagina, and just you know, Cage's love of women, love of sex, love of whatever. And so I know it's peaches, sort of the the singer and not the fruit, but just having peaches once again return to a Cage movie made me so so happy. Getting back to who this Cage character is and putting sort of his backstory together, you know, the first time I put this on, it starts with a car driving out of hell. Like, that is the first thing going on in this movie, right? And then it cuts to sort of like a mini car chase, and Cage is in the hell car. 
immediately I knew he was some kind of demon that escaped from hell. And then he's asking all these questions about a girl or a baby or where are they and stuff. So I know he's like tracking someone. What started to get confusing was, you know, what is his relationship with this baby? And it really wasn't until a second viewing that I understood that it was in fact his granddaughter that he's trying to save in this and that his own daughter succumbed to the sort of charms of this cult, right? And tried to leave and all this other stuff. Because it is, it gets convoluted. Like, then she gets remarried and then they kill that guy, yet he kind of looks like a young version of Cage from like, from Valley Girl. So I was like, is this a flashback and this is his wife? So uh, yeah, it is a little convoluted but I, I don't know. I was always like, okay, he's this demon from hell, but what is his cause? I kind of like that they don't, at the top of the movie, just say, alright, Where's my granddaughter? You know, my daughter died. Where's my granddaughter? Like, that almost feels like a Liam Neeson sort of thing, like a, a taken. Like, this is this movie, like you said before, it's not going to win any writing awards, but it also doesn't want to just do, like, an info dump at the top. Like, it's smart enough to sort of string us along that we know from the very beginning he's heavily invested in what he's doing for some reason. He's looking for a girl. He's looking for a baby. We don't know who she is or what the relationship is, like you were saying, but we know that she's important to him. And that's really all you need, especially when Cage is, like, blowing up guys with shotguns and just killing anybody who stands in his way who's not giving him answers. We don't need to know everything, because, like, what we're seeing is enough. And I think that's kind of where the genre takes over, right? Like, all the sort of drive-in, you know, I think of Roger Corman films and movies of that nature from, from the 70s and 80s and stuff. Like, a lot of these plots are very loose, you know? And, and you got to sort of string it together with extreme action and, you know, sensational imagery and things like that. And, and I kind of feel like this movie's doing the same thing. Like, there isn't very much story here, so it's trying to dole it out a little at a time as best as it knows how to between these just incredibly violent amazingly entertaining you know shooting sequences and just car sequences the way that the story advances is that he's looking for this girl and he's looking for some place that he thinks is he he gets the idea or someone tells him that like it's a city in or a small town in texas and then he finds out that it's a prison in louisiana so he's sort of in the right direction but to get down there I guess he doesn't have a car. Like, what happened? Why doesn't he have a car? Does his car break down? Did I forget that? Why doesn't he have a car? Why does he have to hop a ride with Amber Heard? Or is he only hopping a ride with her because she is chosen by him? Doesn't the car get destroyed in the first car chase? Yeah, he loses his ride that he jacked from hell. <laughs> he loses his hellmobile. Which you would think would be a little bit more durable if he's, <laughs> yeah. st- if, he's st- if he's driving out of hell. Yeah, well, I'm just surprised he drove out of hell because the accountant is walking the whole movie. Right? <laughs> like, he it was his car. Obviously. Oh, there you go. <laughs> he jacked his car. So he gets, he starts driving, or he needs to get down to Texas, Louisiana, wherever, down to the south. And so he catches a ride with Amber Heard, who quits her job as a waitress after her boss really sort of gets aggressively gropey with her, and then finds out that her boyfriend, now fiance, has been cheating on her. And so the two of them are off. And we don't really know, like, I mean, we kind of know where he's going. We don't necessarily know why he's going. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the plot doesn't necessarily, like, we, there's not really much plot here. We're just, like, getting to somewhere, and we're just watching them get there without really knowing what exactly is going on. Yeah, there's not much in the way of an inciting incident. You know, if you're going back to, like, high school English and the little plot tree, things just sort of happen so that they can set up all the pieces to then knock them over. It's not a very strong part, but it gets everyone together. Side note on the diner, did you recognize who the other waitress was? No, but she feels like she's somebody. She's uh, Katie Milton, who is the teacher in Eastbound and Down. 
that Katie oh, Powers is always yeah. trying to sleep with. Katie Milton basically exists to be like a little bit older than the hot girl and also be sexually harassed nonstop. So I thought it was funny <laughs> that uh, I laughed pretty hard when I saw her being that exact thing. Well, that short order cook I recognize from Rescue Me, and he's kind of the opposite. Like, he's just sort of this good guy, this sort of gentle guy on Rescue Me, and here he's just like this disgusting pig that you have to figure sort of takes advantage, like only hires beautiful waitresses that he can sort of take advantage of because he's in a position of power. So it's cool to see him sort of in a different role, and it's also sort of good to see him get his comeuppance when he runs into William Fickner a little bit later. I also like this little moment we get after she quits and, and goes back to the trailer park. Um, and I guess that's where she gives Cage a ride to the trailer park. She walks in on her fiancé cheating on her and <laughs> drags the girl out naked into the front yard and starts beating the shit out of her. I just like that. I mean, that's probably as much of an inciting incident as we get, right? Is that she lost her job, she lost her fiancé, she's got nothing else going for her, so she may as well give Nick Cage a ride wherever he needs to go because because he basically kind of saves her life right there, right? Like, it's the one time he saves her life where the boyfriend's really starting to punch her hard, and he comes in and drops, like, an air conditioner on his head. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, off they go. It kind of reminded me, it's weird. Like, I'm starting to get, like, a a weird, wild-at-heart Wizard of Oz vibe from this now, and, like, I'm starting to see, like, Dorothy and the Scarecrow again and going off down the Elevick Road on some fucking wild, crazy ride. He kind of saves her life, but I guess he kind of also gives her purpose. That if she didn't go with him, she would have just quit her job, sort of broke up with her boyfriend, and would have been sort of alone and depressed. And so there's nothing for her to do except kind of go with him on this journey. So he sort of saves her life, you know, literally, but also metaphorically, maybe? Well, yeah, I think that's why you were dead on when you said that this really was her movie, like her character's movie. She's the one with the arc. She starts off as the diner waitress. It it shows uh, that she's good with kids as she's on the job. But she's just stuck in place, living with this gross boyfriend. You know, at the end, we see that she can become that mother and raise that child who will grow up to be John Connor and protect the world from the (laughs) apocalypse because this movie is just Terminator. (laughs) But yeah, no, she has the arc. This is, as you said, closest to the inciting incident as we get. It's also the point in the movie where, as I mentioned, the movie just wants to be in your fucking face the stuff with Todd Farmer, the, the, again, as last time, this movie murders the screenwriter on uh, Bad Lieutenant. Here, it murders the screenwriter as well. Uh, the gross <laughs> boyfriend is screenwriter Todd Farmer. There's lines like, uh, you know, other than the, the lots of boobs and butts, as I said, she has a line like, you hit me and I'll tell everyone what you did with my pink dildo. And I'm just like, oh, fuck you, movie. Stop <laughs> trying to be what you are right now. Just be a movie and don't be an asshole. No, but, like, I mean, it's stupid, but, like, it commits to it, and, like, the only way that I can really defend that is that if you don't like that, there's something happening on screen in the next, it's sort of like National Treasure, like, there's something happening on the screen in the next 30 seconds or minute, if there's a line that makes you groan, if there's, like, an action sequence that you don't like, just sort of wait it out, and then before too long, there's something else crazy, or there's some other stupid line, or there's something else going on that'll distract you from what you, whatever you just didn't like, and chances are that if you didn't like the last thing, you'll probably like the next thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a good sleazy movie. It just felt like this movie was trying so hard at times to be sleazy, despite the fact it felt so clean with the the CGI squibs and the, I mean, 3D, of course, stuff flying at the screen and it just looking very fakey-fake. There was like a disconnect there between the tone and the aesthetic. Like, even when they go to the saloon, I was having flashes of, like, the titty twister from, uh, from Dust Till Dawn as, like, this kind of, like, scumbag hideout with a bunch of women and stuff. But it just, it didn't feel legitimately 
grimy. It felt like it was forcing it a little too much. Fortunately, the movie very quickly gets away from that. But this stuff at the trailer park was the point where I was just like, ugh, movie, stop trying to be something. You're not. Like, you're trying so hard, and it's, it's just falling flat. I probably give this movie too much credit, but I wasn't quite sure if that was just sort of like a joke or if they were sort of trying to drill home in this male-dominated society like she's the toughest one, right? Like, she's like, oh, what's the matter? Like, you don't want to know, like, that you could take it, but, like, I have to take it. or I don't, You know what I'm saying? It's just like you're so scared of this sodomy and yet you call yourself a man kind of thing. It's just like, I don't know. It gives me a sense that she's got the upper hand all the time and Yes, it's juvenile, but again, I think it's like this type of... It's kind of as low as they go. I don't know. It's this. That's the type of film. They don't go much further than that, and I really didn't think too much about it. While this movie kind of treats women poorly, I think it also does a good job of subverting the idea of manliness. Like we were talking about, you know, with the, her boyfriend and with the pink dildo. Later, when they go to that bar where Cage is in full attire as he's compromising that woman... She gets this guy, and she basically picks up this waiter and just like, hey, you want to go back to my room? And then just makes him paint her nails? She is in such a position of power and just makes these men... It sort of dehumanizes everyone equally, which I guess is a new kind of thing. That it's not just degrading to women, it's also kind of degrading to men. Even though it's not necessarily empowering either side. Maybe it's a step forward that everybody is equally dehumanized? (laughs) I don't know. That's a good point, and I actually like that part a lot. It shows you in a lot of ways that Amber Heard's character is a powerful woman. um, But that doesn't just mean that she's smarter than everyone else or she can punch better. Like, she's also a sexually powerful woman and it's not in that way though like a lot of movies make the sexually liberated woman like the bad guy no she's just like you're gonna paint my nails and then maybe i'll have sex with you but the guy just does it and the movie sets her up to be that i'm thinking megan fox in like the transformers movies she's basically amber heard's character is basically dressed the exact same way but the thing is amber heard's character is given things to do they let her steal the action scenes quite a bit uh even when she is a damsel She's attempting to fight her way out while she is being rescued. And the movie really does go out of its way to say, no, no, she's just as much of a hero as undead Nicolas Cage is. And that is great. It's just there's times when the movie, uh, like I said before with with the villain, it needs to go farther or it needs to pull back. And it just stays in this middle ground that feels ingenuine. She has a really great escape sequence a little later on from the Winnebago, but um, I think the one thing that really got me about this, I was like, oh, he's painting her nails, but also, he's completely naked, right? (laughs) And she's fully clothed. Yeah, she's holding all the cards. And the exact opposite of Nicolas Cage, what he's doing at that moment. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. So it's almost showing, like, the comparison. Yeah, she is the female equivalent of Nicolas Cage. So you can just assume that all of the badassery going on within him, she is fully capable of. I think that's what they're doing. They're trying to say, like, they are two sides of the same coin. And maybe that's why he chose her, because he saw himself inside her, and that she could go toe-to-toe with him, whether it's flating guys, holding all the power cards. Again, going back to Next, and maybe, you know, the golden man, that the book, the novelette that it was based on, Cage is sort of this irresistible force to women, and that they all sort of flock to him. And it seems like Amber Heard is sort of this irresistible force for men. That all the men that we see in this movie, you know, whether it's her boyfriend, her boss, this waiter at this bar, they're all drawn to her, and they all want. And even you know Billy Burke in his sort of terrible poetic attempts at villainy, where he's just like, you know, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to ravage your body. That you know, that as stupid and awful as that line is. 
all these men in her life that she sort of encounters just can't wait to get their hands on her. And so they're both sort of these, like, bastions of, like, pure beauty, I guess. It's weird to compare the beauty of Cage to the beauty of Amber Heard, but hey, I guess it makes sense in this movie. But they're both basically the same. Like, you know, Mike, two sides of the same coin, like you said. Everybody wants them. You know, men want her, and women want him. It's definitely hard to compare the beauty of Nick Cage in this movie, considering he looks like Tim Burton throughout this entire movie. <laughs> oh, great call. I didn't pick up on that. I, well, here's one thing I do like about his look. I got the impression that he's been in hell. Like, he kind of has, like, a bit of a tan. Like, his hair is bleached, right? Almost like it's seen too much heat. And his beard is sort of patches of shaved. I don't know if you noticed that, but later on in, like, close-ups, there's, like, just, like, someone took a razor and just, like, went nuts on his face and didn't shave him all the way and stuff. So it almost got the effect that he had been burned or something. I kind of dug it. He, he had a strong presence for me as sort of the, the man in black. Yeah, he was rugged as hell. I, I, I don't dislike his look, but when he had, with that hair and with the sunglasses, it, uh, it just reminded me of Tim Burton, which was good because immediately after I watched that, I went and watched The Death of Superman Lives. It reminded me to do that. So <laughs> I can appreciate his, his dumb Tim Burton look throughout this movie. Yeah. I think that Cage, I mean, it's hard to judge because I'm not physically attracted to Nicolas Cage, but I think he looks better in this movie than he has in other recent movies. He kind of looks a little bit younger. He looks a little bit more lively. We've seen him kind of be really skinny in some movies and sort of have, like, receding hairlines in others. I think he looks more like Cage from five or ten years ago in this movie than in a couple other movies recently. Yeah, he hasn't really seen this alive in a couple films, like, since Kick-Ass, really. Like, you know, Sorcerer's Apprentice, Season of the Witch, he was in those films doing his thing, but not since Kick-Ass have I felt like he's really having fun in the role, and that's, like, coming through the screen. One thing I noticed about, you know, halfway through this movie, he gets shot in the eye and loses his eye, and, and that just further completes my Snake Plissken similarities there. But also, it's the second movie in a row, Season of the Witch being the last, where he's lost an eye. At the end of that movie, the demon witch scarred one of them and like, sort of took an eye out. So what's interesting to point out about that is that the reason that Cage wanted to do this movie, or one of the reasons he wanted to do this movie, was when he gets his eye shot out. Because apparently in Season of the Witch, there was a similar sequence that was really sort of graphic like it is in here. But they wanted to tone it down, so Season of Witch was rated PG-13 instead of R. I think this happened one other time in case of, I don't remember what it was, but he had this vision of something horrific happening to his body, and it didn't happen in Season of the Witch. So he's like, oh, like that gets to happen to me in Drive Angry? Like, absolutely. Like, I'll take this real part in Drive Angry. Like, I just want to get my eye shot out really, really gruesomely. That was another uh, moment where, you know, he gets his eye turns into this big red thing, so he puts sunglasses over it. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we're just doing Terminator again. Got it, movie. <laughs> Let's go. Well, we've also had Cage and sunglasses in a lot of movies, and this isn't necessarily to limit his character. It's not to give him more things to do, but Cage and sunglasses again. Like I didn't, I didn't pick up on these things really when I was watching it. But there's these like motifs that run throughout Cage Club that you know, sunglasses and Cage they go hand in hand. The greatest scene in this film is when he's having the gunfight while he's having sex with the girl Candy. In that scene, it's like prop heaven for for cage right <laughs> he's got the sunglasses he's got the cigar which made me think of the family man he sure. shared a cigar with piven and then he's got the bottle of jack daniels and a gun and he's having sex and he's and the, and the woman is basically a prop too yeah the naked woman and so <laughs> like he's smoking drinking fucking and killing 
all at the same time. It's like a smorgasbord scene for him. I feel like everything all in one that he that he could have ever thought of right here. It's amazing. Also, it's so, like it's 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 ult- it's peak manliness. Also, blatantly stolen from Shoot 'Em Up. Well, yeah. <laughs> Like I was telling you before we started recording this, that you said it was done better in Shoot 'em Up. I said, but Shoot 'em Up doesn't have Nicolas Cage. There's the difference. The problem that I have with this movie, and it's not a big problem, but it is something that I think could be drastically better, is that Shoot 'em Up is just tighter. Like there's the same level of crazy frenetic action, similar kind of scenes, but it's just all. I feel like I haven't seen it in, in several years, but I feel like it's all paced better. Here, there are kind of like not super prolonged stretches, but there are sort of extended stretches of this movie where things aren't really happening, where just people talking about, like, what's going to come next. And I know that you sort of need that to keep a plot or, like, a semblance of plot going, but this movie already is, like, so committed to just being crazy over-the-top action, I wish that there was a little bit more, like, there's a couple gaps in the middle, especially, like, when the cops show up and the sheriff shows up and everything that things seem to slow down a little bit, I kind of get a little bit bored because I'm just waiting for the next crazy thing to happen. Yeah, I feel that movie sort of benefited from staying away from trying to tell more of a story and, and just relying on, like, its awesome extreme action sequences. And, and, it, and it worked for that because you had Clive Owen is great, but then you also had Giamatti in there, right? He really doesn't have to do much to do really good, if you had to ask me. And, like, he just rocked the role in there, whereas we get Pastor King or whoever, you know, we get this satanic guy who's, like, just doesn't have that level of energy. I think it's things like that. Plus, we also get the lulls where we go to Cage's, you know, old friend from when he was alive and we have to reiterate his backstory just so the audience gets it straight before we go into the final battle. So yeah, this movie just tries to have those moments where it takes its time to get itself clear, whereas I feel like Shoot 'em Up is just like a marathon from beginning to end and, you know, it doesn't even give you a chance to stop and think. I, uh, I wanted to ask you guys a question. Uh, last time I was on, I brought up this movie, and I'm going to bring it up again, because I haven't seen Ghost Rider. And going into this movie, knowing what I knew, the movie that I was writing in my head was just Ghost Driver, pretty much just Ghost Rider in a car. And I'm curious uh, how accurate that is or isn't. The second Ghost Rider we haven't gotten to yet. Mike hasn't seen it yet. This is the last Cage movie that Mike has seen, so everything from here on out is new for him. I saw Spirit of Vengeance, I don't remember it much, and I don't want to talk about it too much, even if I did. The first Ghost Rider, it's not, like, he's not Ghost Rider the first, like, half of it, right, Mike? Like, it's kind of, it's more of an origin story. This sort of feels like, in a sense, Ghost Rider 1.5. I consider this kind of in Cage's demon, hellspawn, whatever, not to steal a subtitle, but, like, Spirit of Vengeance, that he sort of fits in here, that he's a man on a mission from hell, or channeling the powers of hell, to do what he needs to do. So it's similar in tone. Not, not, not as well. It is similar in tone. This is much more crazy and over the top and graphic. They're similar ish characters. That Johnny Blaze is not like this guy, is not like John Milton, but Ghost Rider is like John Milton. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and I definitely get a lot of a Ghost Rider vibe. I mean, the plot is almost identical once Ghost Rider gets on with it. The idea is that the Devil's Son needs some ancient parchment so that he can release Hell on Earth. And so in this movie, you have this 
guy who wants to sacrifice a baby so that he can release hell on earth and in both movies Nicolas Cage needs to stop said person Ghost Rider relies a little too much on its CGI and its sort of devotion to a comic book style whereas this movie reaches comic book levels of craziness and wackiness but has sort of a style all of its own or or is just a little grittier. Yeah, I I, I would definitely sort of put this into the Ghost Rider trilogy. Like, I almost imagine, like, if his head was on fire the entire movie, you know, and never switched out of his Ghost Rider powers, then you'd be pretty close. I feel like this is kind of the movie that Ghost Rider wants to be. I mean, I don't think Marvel has any intention of ever being this graphic, at least in the movie. I mean... I feel like if Ghost Rider was like a Netflix series, I don't think the nudity would necessarily be a part, but the violence and sort of the intensity of it like would be part of it. But I feel like this is in some ways kind of the movie that Ghost Rider wants to be and is either afraid to be or just unable to be. I don't know. Didn't uh, Neville Dean and Taylor do one of the Ghost Riders? Yeah, they did the second one, yeah. which I remember it being better, but I don't remember it being great because I had seen at least one of the Crank movies. It's not as good as Crank. Like, that's all, that's all I really want. I want, like, a crank version of Ghost Rider. Like, that would be amazing. Right. But I, it's not that. I spent a lot of this movie thinking Neville Dean and Taylor would have done this so much better. Well, they would do, like, everything better, is, is the bottom line. At this point, we're introduced to a sheriff character who, you get this idea, seems to maybe have some idea of who John Milton is. Also, John Milton as the name of a guy who comes out of hell is pretty stupid. Just a side note for those <laughs> literature people out there. But yeah, it's played by Tom Atkins, uh, who was in the screenwriter's last movie, My Bloody Valentine, who was in Night of the Creeps, who was in Halloween 3. Like, this guy is awesome. I love Tom Atkins. But he's really just there for a cup of coffee. He has this scene, and then another scene that's solely designed to have a useless explosion, and then just walks to the edge of the movie's city limits and disappears. <laughs> I don't know if it's padding. This movie is all already an hour and 40 minutes, so it didn't need padding, but, like, can any of you figure out why Tom Atkins is here and why he's wasted and why he's not having more, like, turn it off, turn it off moments? Like, his thing is being loud and screamy, and he doesn't do any of that here. He gets to wear that terrific spoilers t-shirt, right, where he, like... <laughs> turns to the oh, screen. Okay. You're absolutely right. It feels like he's here because the audience this is geared towards would recognize him from his work. The Halloween 3 season of The Witch, you know, it's achieved its cult status at this point, so clearly these filmmakers are a fan of it if this guy is in here. It's a shame that he doesn't go out like a champ you're right like he just sort of the movie just moves on from him he doesn't show up at the end to do anything cool he doesn't witness cage being incredible very much i mean he is in that one sequence where they flip the propane truck the fuel truck but that's like the uh, the end of him so it was kind of a disappointment i mean if you knew who he was if you had recognized him i I think you were expecting something maybe i don't know if you were expecting his head to turn into worms but something so i feel like the thing with him in this movie is that this movie is obviously not aiming for the smartest of audiences. It's kind of doing a lot of things to sort of capture the lowest common denominator. And so if you're the type of person who loves this movie and goes to see movies like Halloween 3 or like all these different movies, I think him just showing up, if you're not expecting more, if you're not, you know, if you're not trying to compare this to, for instance, Bad Lieutenant, like the last movie that Chris talked about, if you're not trying to compare it to other things and you're just sort of taking this movie for like the popcorn thriller it is or popcorn movie that it is, just seeing this guy that you love from other things in it, I think, is enough. That they might have had him for, like, one day on set and been like, hey, you know, we love what you've been doing. 
We're really big fans of your work. I think the people who are going to watch this movie are going to be big fans of your work. We'd love to get you on set just for a day. Like, you can wear, like, a stupid T-shirt, do kind of your thing. Well, you'll be in and out in, like, 24 hours. I, I feel like that's kind of what happened here. Well, it seems like he's there. I mean, he's a real piece of shit. He basically says, when these wanted people get out of the car to surrender, I want you all to murder them. But he never gets any comeuppance. And all it seems to be there for is to lead to a scene where William Fickner's character finds out that one of the cops is in Jonah's cult. Um, and that just made me sad because it felt like that was a plot point that had potential and was just dropped. Like, if anywhere that Nicolas Cage and Amber Heard went, someone could have been in the cult and, like, they always had to be watching their backs. Like, that's a cool idea. There's just so many plot points brought up here that are completely dropped for a really pointless explosion and William Fickner turning into a video game so he can kickflip out of a tanker truck to stand on a car or whatever he does. Which is pretty great. Like, in slow motion, walks in regular speed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which means he's got super fast reflexes, right? (laughs) Well, we see him him dodge out of the way of the baseball bat in the beginning of the movie. We see him sort of neo his way out of the soul-sucking bullet that Cage fires. We know that he can sort of react really quickly. I think that, I, I guess he can do his whole body like that, too. Can I ask you a question about William Fickner's characters, like what he is and who he is? Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he's Charon, like the ferryman of the River Styx. He's got the coin. It almost seems like it's implied that Cage had to almost go through him or go around him to get out of hell. So that's why I think that's who it is. But he's also seemingly the Grim Reaper. They steal a joke from the last action hero where he's talking to the two stoner kids and he's like, you, I'm coming back for when you're 75. You, I'll see you in like three weeks. He's like this combination of all of these death mythical creatures, and Cage even name drops like Anubis, Hades, and like you can see that Todd Farmer Googled like mythological death (laughs) figures uh, while he was writing this. What is he? Because some people he doesn't kill, like I said, because he knows when he has to kill them. And some people, like the boyfriend, he just straight up murders. So like, what is up with this character? I think what your idea before that that Cage stole his car... I mean, I can't answer all these questions. I don't know that anybody can. But in terms of key, like sort of Cage got past him, I think that... So he's he's the accountant. He's Satan's accountant. He's there to sort of collect and make sure all the souls get processed on time. I don't know why he's also guarding the exit to hell unless... I mean, maybe he's got a lot of jobs. Maybe he's, a, he's got a lot of part-time jobs in hell. I don't know. I don't know why he's guarding the gates and sort of Cage has to get by him. I mean, if, if we're going with your theory earlier that he's that Cage stole his car it would make sense that he had direct contact with him when he broke out of hell. I love the idea that hell is like on hard times and people need to have multiple jobs (laughs) so that they can support themselves in hell. I love the concept that hell is just run like a giant prison and that the devil's a warden and, you know, is annoyed when people sacrifice babies in his name and things like that. There is compassion in hell, you know? (laughs) My whole theory about the accountant is that he's sort of a new demon or like a new god. So you have, like, death, you have, you know, Loki, you know, Wotan, Anubis, the guy at the river sticks. You have all these people and now it's the 21st century, so we have the accountant. Right. And he is just sort of the modern version of these guys, I feel, because that's what I get from Cage, where Cage is like, you, you're not like anyone important. No one knows who you are. Right. Like you, you walk around acting like you're Loki and all this, but no one knows your name yet. And it's like I feel like they're just trying to sort of build on the mythology of hell and things like that. He has like reason. Right. Like he ends up helping Cage do what he needs to do because he's like, wow, man, this is like a righteous cause. Like you broke out of hell for the right reasons. Right, man. Like, you could do what you got to do, and then I'll take you back. I agree with that. I love depictions of hell 
in movies as just like um, a place where people do stuff that they have to do. Fickner's there to do a job. And he's like, go, go kill these idiots who think that sacrificing a baby is going to do anything for the devil who does not give a shit about these people. It happens sometimes in horror movies here and there where the devil's like, oh, you idiots are making me look bad again. Like, that's not what I do. I don't eat babies. Come on. Like, I really liked Fickner's uh, portrayal of that, too, where he was just a dude who had to do a job. I also like their depiction of hell in this movie as a place that, like, people aren't afraid of. Cage is like, what's he going to do? Like, not let me back in? Like, I don't care. Like, what's the devil going to do to punish me for, like, breaking out of hell? I'm not afraid of him. It just, it is just sort of like a place with guys and just, you know, the devil is just a guy who is in charge, but he's just like your boss. Like, you know, like, what's your boss going to do? Like, fire you from a job you hate? All right, go ahead. I'm going to go do my thing. I'm not worried about what he's going to do. And if he does overreact, I'm just going to break out again and just do more things that I want to do. So it's just it's just kind of cool. We only sort of get like a taste of what the torture in hell is like for these people. And he, he mentions like how high tech it is. There's like video feed 24-7 of just, you know, the sorrow that the people you've left behind experience. It's like almost like 1984, I envision, where like you can't help but see the big monitor on your wall and you can never turn it off or ever turn it down. And it's just constantly broadcasting the things like... Like you just don't want to see happening on Earth without you. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, they also make the point that Cage has a line toward the end of the movie. We sort of get the sense that hell isn't as bad as what could happen to you on Earth. That he says something like, burning is nothing compared to seeing your daughters being head ripped off. But that I guess seeing happened to his daughter. I know, but, like, he saw it happen in real yeah. life, right? Or, or yeah, no? yeah, he saw it in real time. Like, he died before that happened, so when he's in hell, like, he had to see her uh, okay. seduced by the cult and all this stuff. Yeah, I got the idea that hell was, like, a very personal thing, and that's another another literature thing, like, going back to, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, like, John Milton, Paradise Lost, or, like, a lot of depictions of hell, like Dante's Inferno, is, like, hell can be a very personal thing. And I got the idea that, like, because he was never there for his daughter... That, like, his personal hell was to see everything. To see everything, like, have to watch his daughter have sex, have to see everything that was bad, have to see her be murdered and, like, her body be torn apart. I really like what they did in general with hell in this movie. I agree with you. You feel for Cage a lot in this movie, considering he's playing an undead zombie that shoots people and doesn't emote very much. (laughs) There's little things that they do that really make both him a very sympathetic character and give a very rich background to the movie without saying too much like they talk about the god killer gun he's just like oh i walked in and stole it like what is it where is it like, what are you talking about but it's just these cool little things that they don't have to explain it's just fun little nods that let you fill in the gaps of this this hell world and i love their depiction of hell in this movie it's it's something that i felt they did really well I think another example of that hell being such a personal place is that toward the end of the movie when david morse shows up and i love seeing david morse and things and he's kind of got this history with cage And he's explaining to Amber Heard, you know, he was a really terrible husband, but he was like a really good father. And so you could tell that he really loved his daughter. And so maybe his punishment in hell is not only feeling bad that he couldn't be there for her, but just seeing this girl that he loves so much just go through her worst things that it just, you're right, like he is a sympathetic character. It's just like a brutal thing that he has to deal with that this girl that he probably loves more than anything in the world, his punishment is to see these men and he has no ability to stop them just take advantage of her and rape her and kill her and steal her baby and just awful yeah and it's it's really the thing that's gonna set this character apart from something like a terminator or snake plissken where like those guys are pretty much just like these killing machines that you know throw out quips from time to time and you know i don't recall ever knowing anything about snake plissken (laughs) i know i know more about how the terminator was assembled 
Uh, and then here it gives credence to his tone for the whole movie, why he's been such a brood, you know? Like, it makes sense now, and it connects, and it's working, and it's pretty cool. And I also like how we don't really ever find out why he got to hell. Like, we just know, like, this was his ex-partner, and he went to... Like, his last act was to say, stay away from my friend where he's out of the game, and I assume they, they kill him for that. Like, he gives his life so that his friend could go. He dies sort of righteously, but he must have lived, like, this horrible life. And we never really get any of that. And, and I love how, like, none of that even really matters. Like, we're more focused on the fact that he's been in hell this whole time. And, and if I'm not mistaken, that's a reunion, right? They were both in The Rock together, weren't they? Yes, they most certainly were. What would your personal hells be if you went to Drive Angry oh. Hell? I guess a hell where I don't get to watch any Nicholas Cage movies, <laughs> yeah. or a hell where it's basically like my real life, where I have to edit so many Cage <laughs> movies, and I'm always falling behind. I can never catch up, and I'm letting so many of our fans down. That is a tough question to answer, but I'll give this one. I'll say Amos and Andrew on a loop, probably. <laughs> Something close to that. I think mine would be I'm on an endless flight, and the only people on it are screaming babies. Just you and just a whole bunch of screaming a babies? Like are, the pilot, are, of are the pilots screaming babies? Um, I can't even get to the pilots to crash the plane. I just pull oh. myself out of my misery. It's just flying forever, and it's all screaming babies. And you're in a middle seat next to two oh, fat babies. absolutely. Two really big fat babies. And we're near the bathroom. Um, oh, it's just the worst. That's one of my the levels. The bathroom just filled with dirty diapers. Ever since uh, guarding Tess, I've had a thing about being buried alive, so maybe I'd be buried alive forever. <laughs> Uh, and that's why I like the depictions of hell as, like, not this place of flames and you're getting pitchforked in the butt forever. It's, like, it's a very personal thing. I think that's the scary thing of hell, and I think any depiction of it that lets you fill in your own gaps about how terrible it can be does hell correctly. And maybe maybe Amber Heard is kind of giving all these men in her life their own depiction of hell. Imagine, you know, being tempted with the promise of having sex with Amber Heard, but instead all you get to do is paint her toenails forever. Or, you know, her boyfriend <laughs> is this guy, you're into whatever you're into, but you're embarrassed about it, and that your hell is that you better shape up, or else I'm going to tell the whole world your dirty, dirty secret. She's kind of the reckoning. Like, she's just saying, like, oh, you don't have any idea what your hell is going to be. Like, here, like, I could make your life a whole lot worse. The idea that that busboy is like this movie Sisyphus makes me extremely happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that guy even gets shot and killed. Poor dude. So we're really rocketing toward the end here, and William Fickner at one point comes barreling down. Like, I think we talked about the scene earlier when he's barreling down in that hydrogen truck, and the police chief from Season the Witch is on the road, and he's just playing That's the Way I Like It. And, like, it's such a corny, terrible song choice, but also I feel, like, completely perfect. I love the terrible decisions that are intentional in this movie. It works. Yeah, I got the feeling that he hasn't really been to Earth recently and like maybe this is like new music for him and so he's coming across sort of like out of touch with everything and like that is sort of why people get it like it's more it's not so much about how he looks it's more about how like you know he acts and talks to people and things and like flashes his badge at them and he's just really funny because like when death takes like have you guys seen the brad pitt movie where death takes a vacation and like you know meet joe black you know he comes to earth and he's so awkward because he's just like fish out of water and i almost get the sense that the accountant is like reveling in in this time on earth is like catching up with all the things he didn't he that he missed out on and like one of them is this song meet joe black much like drive angry has a really good car crash scene as well that infamous gif where brad pitt's crossing the street and gets hit by a car 
popped up into the air and then hit by another car. That would be straight out of this movie. So it just made me think about that. So that's a good comparison, is that he never... Like, he doesn't get to come to Earth very often. I mean, even Nick Cage makes the point, like, um, his driver's license is expired. He's like, uh, do you have one of those... Uh, what, mobile phone things? She's like, a cell phone? You dummy? Like, that's how she starts to put it together that he's not from this time. I love the little characterizations of the hell people in this movie. It keeps coming up, but it is, is one of my favorite parts. And it's, it's telling that we're barreling towards the end of this movie and really haven't talked about the action sequences too much because they're really just drive car, smash, shoot guy, he dies, next level. It's yeah, very like, video gamey. Like, when I was watching the movie and looking for, you know, scenes to screenshot or clips from Mike DePole to put in the audio, like, there's not a lot. Like, it's cool stuff to watch. Like, it's all fun, but there's nothing super iconic. It all sort of feels like things you've seen before until the very end when Billy Burke gets the bullet in his gut, the soul sucker from the God Killer gun, and he has kind of the most spectacular death in the history of Cage Club. But, like, aside from those moments or that moment... There's not much here in the way of really kind of original excitement. It's kind of, you're right, like just shoot guy, thing explodes, onto the next thing. There's a pretty good cat fight in the Winnebago. That's when I wrote down that Billy Burke and Amber Heard are big talkers. They're just talking shit to each other and like, all right, you bring it on. And they just sort of throw down, you know, for this sort of ultimate bad guy that we're talking about maybe is a little bit effeminate and sort of this kind of generic, not very manly dude. Amber Heard's kind of sticking to him like she's holding her own in this fight. Yeah, she kicks ass, and this is when she escapes. I love this escape scene, too. You know, she gets to jump out the window onto the car and through the windshield, and, you know, they do the whole rodeo here. And and she pulls it off great, you know. She has to really fight her way out of this situation. She is not waiting around to get rescued. It's a little bit of Diane Kruger, kind of, in the first National Treasure, sort of going from one vehicle to another and being rescued by Cage. But it's less that she's being rescued and sort of like, I just need a car to jump onto. Like, I'm doing the rescuing myself. I'm not a damsel in distress. Just, I need a place to fall to. And so we find out that the cultist goal is to bring hell to Earth. And I was thinking about Operation Hell on Earth from Mr. Show and about how this is just <laughs> basically as bad of a plan as that plan was to separate the United States into new different territories and separate people up. We don't really know. I mean, the cultists are just sort of vague and I think that it's sort of from the top down that not only is Billy Burke kind of vague and generic, but the whole cult kind of is. Like they just sort of worship Satan, and as we find out, they have a misguided view of Satan that he's not interested in sacrificing babies, and so he sends the accountant to take care of them. But there's like this final scene. Cage drives in in his car and just starts driving around and killing people and shooting naked women with shotguns. And just there's some pretty crazy, I mean, going back to the Wicker Man, some kind of crazy like violence against women. But like they're bad women. So I guess it's kind of OK. I kind of enjoyed that the concubines of Jonah were willing to pull out guns and throw down a little bit. Regardless, there's there's no gender subtext there. It's just, it was a nice little thing I saw was that they were so into the cult that everyone, all of them, even the ones who were just there for the set, like, for him to have sex with were willing to die for him. Like, like I said before, I wish they made him more of a charismatic presence, like a, a talker as opposed to a fighter, because when he does fight, it's really shitty. Yeah, the whole sacrificing the baby, William Fickner says it's not going to work. All of that kind of adds to the fact that he's just a charlatan, that he's a limp dick. In fact, they call him dickless so many times throughout this movie. I kind of just wished I was watching Ghostbusters at a, a few times here and there. <laughs> it really falls flat, this ending, the setting in general. Like, the last level is not that impressive. It's not a great set piece. But what I do like about this final sequence, and it has nothing to do with the action, is that we get kind of a cool, tender moment between William Fickner and Amber Heard. He says something to her about, you know, someone else is always going to come. If you kill me, basically another me is going to come and kill Cage. You can never have enough time with the people you love. 
So just go to him. Like, spend the moments with him. I mean, we don't really know exactly what Cage is, but maybe he knows in his accountant brain that Cage only has 10 minutes left on Earth, that he's going to go back to hell in 10 minutes or whatever, and he wants Amber Heard to spend those last 10 minutes with him. But it's cool this kind of moment. I mean, she does have the drop on him. She steals the god killer away from him and sort of could blow him away. So maybe it's just him talking her out of the scene and getting himself safe. I like that he says to her, be with him. Like, I know that you may not be in love with him, but, like, he means something to you. Just go be with him in his, in his moments. And that's it's kind of a cool little scene between two characters who, up to this point, really haven't interacted with each other. Yeah, I get the uh, sense that, at this point, the accountant is just, like, really into what Cage is doing. Like, just thinks it's the coolest, you know? Like, man, this is why you break out of hell and all that kind of stuff. I genuinely feel like, you know, his characters come around and he's like, I, you know, I'm helping him as much as I can. You know, like, it might not seem that way to you, but this is, you know, we're from hell. Like, this is kind of how we do our stuff. Like, I can't physically go and fight alongside him, but I can let him fight for whatever he wants. And then, you know, I think the idea is, like, either they're going to kill him and the accountant will take him back anyway, or he's going to kill them and the accountant will take him back anyway. So the thing is, like, you know, he's going back pretty soon. Go ahead. Go out, Bonnie and Clyde. Or like, well, they died. Go out there, like Rambo and Commando, and side by side, and just stop them from raising hell by raising a lot of hell. Yeah, it just tells the audience what Fichter and Cage already knew. He stole the God Killer not to, to kill Fichtner, but just to slow him down. There's a bunch of scenes where they Cage is driving away and they slows down and they just look at each other and kind of like give a small nod at each other. Like they have mutual respect. And that's just how we know as the audience. Like Fichter's not a bad guy. He's a dude doing his job. And yeah, I love that. I like that he lets Amber Heard go out and murder people. She's great doing it. Yeah, and this is kind of where I wish they wrote this, uh, the cold guy. Like, I wish at this point we found out that, like, maybe he did have some kind of actual mystical powers, because I am thinking about his kind of, his followers and stuff, and it would make a little more sense if they were under some kind of mind control to be following him for, like, just how unsuave I'm finding him. I guess they're trying to show the power dynamic again. Like, people that Cage and Amber Heard run across, like, they sort of, like, impose their power on them, but this guy needs to show everybody all the people he imposes his power on at once. He's super insecure in that way. I'm not sure what they're going for, but at least he's got some fighters for him here at the end. What I kind of think is funny, and it's kind of like a screw you to the audience maybe, is that finally at the very, very end here, Cage like tells Amber Heard who he is. He's like, I'm not of this earth. And like by that point, she's like, yeah, like of course. Like I, I realize that now. Like Why couldn't you tell me that earlier in the movie, right? I'm going to kill you. Ah, oh, man. So many have tried. But I am armored with a power that you will never know. Nothing of this earth can kill me. Not of this earth. You know what? I kind of appreciated that too, in a way, because how many times have we had the scene where it's like, you know, okay, in Sorcerer's Apprentice, there's a character who was like, I'm a wizard. I do magic stuff. Deal with it. And Ghost Rider, he's like, oh, I'm Ghost Rider. Like, you know, my head turns into fire and I fight demons. And and you just have like these scenes that usually fall kind of flat and are tried to play for laughs. And I just kind of appreciated they skipped over that and <laughs> kept it more mysterious or tried to add it to his character is just not the talkative type or just not one to stray from the mission too far. 
the bad guy's death is okay. He gets shot with a gun that doesn't send you to hell or heaven, just creates, like, you, you're sent to nothingness. You're just, you don't exist anymore. That's, that's pretty intense, pretty existential in a world where we know hell and heaven do exist. It's kind of dopey looking because it gets super 3D'd out, but I like the idea. And then Nick Cage gets to drink beer out of a skull. That's cool. Yeah. David Morris offers him a beer earlier in the movie, and he says, I won't drink unless I'm drinking it out of his skull. And then when the skull lands, I was like, oh, now he gets to drink his beer. And then he drinks the beer at the end. Yeah, I kind of like this um, 3D death going on. I was surprised how little the movie threw the 3D in your face. I mean, clearly when it starts off, they want you to know you're in a 3D movie. And and at certain points, there's some shattered glass and and certain things like baseball bats. But they didn't over-design it as 3D. But they really try to go for it here with this. um, There's like a spell on the bullet and the gun is its craziness whatever the hell's going on with that. And you're right, like the concept of what happens to this guy, like no heaven or hell for him. It reminded me, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks, but like when you die, you go to purgatory and sort of plead your case for going to heaven or else they send you back to earth. And then it's like, you know, if you go to earth too many times, they just sort of throw you away. <laughs> you don't go to heaven or hell. You just sort of don't exist anymore. And I liked how they went there. I have a couple of little random tidbits about the movie. Um, anything else about the plot that we want to talk about before we sort of get outside the movie or no? They get to drive across the CGI highway to hell while a song that sounds like they couldn't get the licensing rights to Bat Out of Hell. So yeah, I thought, like a really I thought bad the beginning was going to be Bat Out of mm-hmm. Hell, and then I was just like, oh, no, nope. I wrote meatloaf, question mark, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I have Bat Out of Hell in all caps, and then a line through it. It was It's so close. Like I feel like there's a lot of songs in here, and I only, I can't even remember them now. I feel like there are a lot of songs that feel like they're big songs, but maybe they're all sort of like just slightly off. I don't know. If we're comparing this to Shoot 'em Up, like Shoot 'em Up has such a great soundtrack, you know, like Kickstart My Heart and all these different songs, that even though I haven't seen the movie in years, I still remember these scenes associated with these songs. Here are just kind of like the right type of music, but the wrong song. I mean, it makes sense. It's fitting since this movie is basically a cover of a bunch of better movies. <laughs> Well, how much do you think this movie cost to make? I sort of know a little. I watched some of the behind-the-scenes features. I'm going to say $20 million. Mike, what do you think it is? Do you I, remember? I'm pretty sure it's a, it's like around that, right? It's like 20 30 No, it's 50 Oh, it's wow. that much. Oh, okay. How much do you think this movie made worldwide? Oh, jeez. Or you can guess domestic, either one. Hmm. 3D was still kind of a thing at this point. But, yeah, but keep those in tickets mind, were expensive. Yeah. Keep in mind, I saw this movie in theaters in 3D the night it was leaving theaters, and I was by myself. I really <laughs> wanted to see this movie, and I drove like 45 minutes to see this movie in 3D. It was the last showing. It was on a Thursday night before they took out the movies for the new, for the new movies on Friday. So I paid at least, you know, 12 bucks to see this movie. Any guesses, either domestically or worldwide, what this made? I bet it got close, but it didn't get there. 45 or something like that. Worldwide or domestic? Uh, I'll say it made, like, I don't know how big Cage is overseas. I don't know how big 3D is overseas. So I'll, I'll just say, like, 40 million domestic. Mike, any guesses? Um, I'm going to go with my guess of the budget, which was, I would say, 30 domestic. 30 domestic, 30 domestic. Okay. It made 10 million domestic. Oof. It was a huge flop, and it made another 18 worldwide. Oof. Which oh, I man. feel like this—I feel like this is the kind of movie that would work well overseas. That's just mm. crazy visual action, and I don't know if 3D translates well overseas. 
but it's just Cage doing crazy things and like there's crazy special effects. I'm honestly surprised this wasn't a bigger hit overseas. I think it was just near the end of the 3D craze. It was a non-IP movie, even though it was basically Ghost Rider. It wasn't Ghost Rider enough for them to put the Marvel stamp on it, you know, obviously. Like, it, it was an original IP. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised it flopped. This thing feels almost like it was filmed in the Ukraine or something, right? <laughs> like, that's a, kind of a vibe I'm getting, like, they would eat this stuff up overseas. Right. I might chalk it up to 3D, too. I think American audiences have just come to expect it, you know, the option of 3D or whatever, like it's there, but I, it may have just been marketed as a 3D movie and people stayed away because they couldn't see it in 2D. And even if you did, maybe it wasn't as enjoyable of an experience. I don't know. I saw this movie in 3D and I remember now that I saw Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance in theaters in 3D. So a couple around this time, you know, this year and the next year, I saw a couple Cage movies in 3D in theaters. So I did my part trying to bring back the box office. I guess neither of you did, so I mean, that's probably why it flopped, because neither of you saw it in theaters. <laughs> well, I own the Blu-ray. Yeah, I own the Blu-ray, too, because the Blu-ray, I think, when it came out was like... I remember buying it like the day it came out for $12 or something on 3D. Like, just like bargain basement already from day one. One interesting thing about this movie is that the John Milton character was originally written to be about 70 years old. When they found out the Cage was interested in the project, they rewrote it to fit him. But do you think this movie would have worked with an old Milton Gran Torino 2, Bat Out of Hell. Yes, give wow. me that movie. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> I think it get, could, I get think, out of my hell. <laughs> get off my fire. I think it would have worked. I think it still works. I kind of like the idea that Cage is playing an 80-year-old in this movie and he's not wearing any makeup. I, don't, I mean, they rewrote the character to be younger, I guess. I don't know. Like, I guess it could always be... I don't know how it would have been different. I think it well, could have I mean, worked. Who could do it aside from Eastwood? And, you know, he wouldn't do this. Like, who could you even... Rutger Hauer, maybe? Harrison Ford. If you got Jack Nicholson before he got a little doughy. If you did, like, a 70-year-old man, I feel like he'd need to be British. <laughs> yeah, like Michael Caine. Yeah, but I, I was thinking Michael Caine, but I'm not sure Michael Caine would work. I could see this movie today as like a 70-year-old, I think he's 70, like Harvey Keitel. Sure. What I mean, maybe this is just the from the car smashing stuff, but Kurt Russell, he's a little too young. Like that's We're talking like 60 there, and he still looks good. He's not as leathered as Clint Eastwood. But well, You know who could play it? Who reminds me, Kurt Russell made me think of him, Richard Jenkins, if he was aged up, oh. he'd look older. That could be good. I don't know if he could carry an action movie by himself, though. Did you guys notice during the church shootout that the guy who lives through that is wearing the worst wig in cinema history? Yes. <laughs> He's got, did you notice this, Joe? He's got, like, this ridiculous pompadour that is yeah. clearly oh, not his yeah, own that hair. Guy. Yes, 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 yes. That was my favorite character and moment of the movie, actually, was that guy's <laughs> hair. There's a lot of church shootouts. So this is at least our second church shootout in Cage Club. There was one in Face Off. I mean, when we're talking about Kick-Ass, we're comparing that to Kingsman. There's obviously the huge church shootout in Kingsman. I guess church shootouts are more common than I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's been in churches a lot, too. I mean, he was in, he was cursing up a storm in Zondali running around that church. Sure was. Played a priest in Face Off. A lot of church imagery in Face Off. Any last thoughts about this movie? Anything else that we didn't cover that you want to talk about, either of you? I think it's a great example of a hangover movie. It's a Sunday morning, and you're hurting, and you're not getting out of bed today. Um... <laughs> and you're flipping through the channels, like, you could do a lot worse than Drive Angry 3D. Would you recommend that people watch it if they're of right mind? No. Don't search this movie out. It, there's so many movies that do everything better, but it's, it's certainly a movie that if it's on and you're hungover or you're sick or you're snowed in, it's acceptable, but I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it, no. I'm going to respectfully disagree and say you should watch this, but now, Mike, you have to be the tiebreaker. Should people seek this out? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is just like a romp, you know, especially if you love schlock, like this is some 21st century schlock, and it's just a great ride, you know, I I had a lot of fun watching it the second time, I'm going to watch it a third time, and the next time I watch it, I'm going to have the access drive angry option on, where they keep track of Milton's mayhem score every time he... Punches, kicks, or murders someone, there's a tally up in the corner of the screen. So <laughs> that's how I'm going. That feels like a thing that would be in Crank. You know what I mean? Like, this mm-hmm. feels like it should be Crank, but it's not. I'm so happy my assertion that this is a video game is validated by the DVD. You could also watch this with My Bloody Valentine back-to-back, and, like, they're basically the same movie, I feel. They're very similar in a lot of ways, because they look the same from the same director and the same co-writer. I think this movie is better and more fun than My Bloody Valentine, but I feel like they're both, if you want some great like pickaxes coming at the screen in 3D, find a 3D TV, find these 3D Blu-rays, and just fire them up and just get the worst kind of 3D effects just thrown at your face. Did you watch it in 3D this time? I did not. I want to. I haven't really busted out the 3D on my TV recently. I should. I contemplated but, yeah. bringing a copy to Best Buy and sitting there for an hour <laughs> and a half watching it. So thank you very much, Chris, for joining us once again. You will be back again for, I think, a straight-to-DVD movie. I'm glad that you, you soldiered through this. I know this wasn't your favorite movie, but I'm glad you stuck it out. Oh, I mean, I guess, you know, I didn't mention that. Like, I know you're trying to wrap it up, but it moves at a nice clip. It didn't feel like an hour and 45 minutes. It felt like a tight 80, you know? Um, it, it moves at a good pace. It's got some good action. I mean, like I said, uh, you're going to get really good performances out of Fickner, Heard and Cage probably in that order. And yeah, like I said, you could do worse. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed probably talking about it more than I enjoyed watching it, but I do really appreciate you guys uh, inviting me back, and I'm excited. I'm excited for the uh, direct-to-DVD Cage era. Yes. Well, that's sort of my thing before. I, I, again, I'm trying to wrap this up, and I don't know why I'm bringing it more, but like, it feels like a tight 80. Just imagine if it actually was a tight 80, like how quick it would feel and just how great it would feel. That just tighten it up a little bit, and just it'd be even better. So is the world that we live in. It feels like, Mike, maybe this is sort of critical of Cage, too critical of Cage, but it feels like a lot of these movies that we've been doing lately feel like straight-to-DVD movies, but they're not. We're sort of, like, easing into this transition of his straight-to-DVD arc. Yeah, it's strange. It's, like, right on the cusp, right? It's like somehow these squeaked through and got distribution. We're coming up into the new era, and, you know, for me, I'm, I'm flying blind. Everything from here on out will be first-time screenings. So, yes. Yeah, so, for all things Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. That's where you can see all of our past podcasts and reviews. You can follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. That's Chris Mattiello, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Thank you.